Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and today we're devoting the entire show, all two hours, to climate change in all of its myriad different angles. It hits us in different ways. We read about the policy arguments in Washington and in state houses across the country about re- about re- reducing your climate footprint, uh, all the ways that we are transforming the economy to an electric economy from a fossil fuel economy. But our next guest looks at climate change and other crises through the eyes of kids. Anya Kamenetz is a journalist and speaker on generational justice about raising thriving kids in a changing on a changing planet. Her newsletter is called The Golden Hour. She covered education for many years for NPR, where she co-created the podcast Life Kit about parenting. Uh, her newest book is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. And uh, she, she, uh, she's especially focused on this, this newsletter of hers called The Golden Hour, and it's a fascinating read. I urge you to Google it and check it out and uh, re- go through her archives. Anya Kamenetz, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Thanks so much for having me. So... Uh, can we start with your latest book, uh, The Stolen Year, and then move into climate change from there? What what did you tackle in in The Stolen Year? So in March of 2020, um, when schools shut down uh, in ev- almost every country around the world, I was covering education for National Public Radio. I also had my two kids at home. They were three and eight years old at the time. And based on my experience reporting um, in places of crisis and conflict um, in New Orleans after Katrina, where it, which is my hometown, I knew that school closures were going to be a really big deal. I knew that they uh, play so many different roles in children's lives that we uh, don't always recognize, particularly in the United States, because we lack a social safety net for children. So I uh, started to work my sources and find families from around the country. And the book, The Stolen Year, um, really tells the the first year of the pandemic story through the eyes of uh, five families from all over the country at lots of different walks of life. And so, and and you you look at, I mean, it, the pandemic is sort of the ultimate uh, crisis that sort of slapped us upside the head. Climate change, where, which is what we're devoting our show to today, is, is more of that slow uh, frog in the frying pan issue. And you uh, write a newsletter called The Golden Hour, looking at climate change through the eyes of kids and how they're dealing with it. Tell us what you're trying to achieve with the newsletter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would, I would um, you know, push back on a tiny bit just to say that I know for you folks in Vermont who had that dramatic flooding not too long ago, and for us in New York City, whether it's a wildfire smoke or um, also incidences of flooding, actually we're experiencing climate change here and now, and it really is um, the toggling back and forth between the acute weather events and um, kind of like the the creeping feeling you're talking about, which is, gee, there's just not as much snow as there used to be a couple of years ago, or the seasons are kind of off kilter. So that is an experience that is really affecting our young people 
in a lot of different ways. And I kind of took the analysis I was I was giving to the pandemic and saying, you know, how are we making decisions with our children in mind? Um, and also understanding that mental health is so important because climate change is something that impacts us. Um, you know, for frontline communities, this is a matter of life and death for many, many people, whether they're fleeing their homes or whether they're suffering the effects of asthma from pollution. Um, and for the rest of us, you know, it's really about that that sense of dread, that creeping sense of what's going to happen next. And how do we bring up kids to thrive despite that that uh, that feeling? And that's really what I focus on in the golden hour. You, yeah, what happens to children when they hear constantly about crises? You call it the poly crisis. Um, what, what happens right. to kids? What do they go through when they hear about climate change over and over again? You know, there was a landmark large study published in The Lancet um, in uh, 2021 that surveyed 10,000 uh, people aged 16 to 25, and it found really distressing responses. Um, you know, 60% were very or extremely worried about climate change. 75% said that they think the future is frightening. Um, so these are feelings that are um, maybe at the edges of their consciousness or they may be front and center depending on what's going on. Um, but we really have to, obviously I feel like we have a huge responsibility to act to prevent climate change and to um, ameliorate climate change. We also have a, a really important responsibility to make sure that our kids are living lives of joy and purpose um, and um, focused on the present as well as a better future because, you know, this is not something like monsters under the bed. We can't tell our kids not to worry about it. We have to be in there with them. You know, you're, you're in New York, so you must look out your window or, or on your walks. You must look at the East River and imagine what life can be like in 10, 20 years. Does that happen to you? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, it's even more present and real than that. You know, we had a day of really severe rain here in um, the end of September. I live in Greenpoint, which is a post-industrial area of Brooklyn that has issues with Superfund sites. It has, um, you know, uh, as well as a digester plant that does um, the compost. So there's a lot going on just in my neighborhood. And when I walk around, I, you know, we remodeled our basement to improve our chances when it comes to flooding. So it's something that's very, very present and real um, for my kids and for myself. Yeah. Um, so you're, you write about, this caught my eye, you write about how to cope. Uh, and, yeah. and you just talked about it, how to, how, to, how to confront the crisis, but also live a life of purpose and joy. Talk about, talk about how you cope and how you're urging your kids to cope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really um, the, the subject that obsesses me. I think that uh, and the good news is that we have all of the wisdom of our accumulated traditions, whether those be spiritual or whether those be from great activists and leaders um, and increasingly psychologists and mental health professionals, all of whom are thinking about this. You know, the idea that our world is precarious and uncertain and fraught with disaster and disease and death and loss, this is not new, right? The Buddha said that the nature of life is suffering, you know, 5,000 years ago. So here we are in this world today, and there's a lot of trivialities tugging at our attention, but we have the opportunity, and I would argue, you know, it's really um, an obligation to think about how we balance um, 
these various things. How do you cultivate beauty and enjoyment and the things that bring you pleasure and joy? How do you uh, start to try to make a difference and join together with other people in order to make sure that you're leaving the world a better place than the one that you came into? Uh, Anya, what is the role of the journalist in in this on this subject of climate change? Uh, is the you know there's the old journalism of of the New York Times of of not taking a position, you're not an advocate, etc. And and I, I think whether it's uh, you know the Trump election or or climate change, I think journalists are faced with a whole new way to approach these issues. Um, and, and it, it's not always easy. How do you approach your journalism, Ray, climate change? That's such a great question. I'm a big fan of the work of Amy Westervelt, who has really done the investigative journalism to deconstruct the fact that when it comes to climate change, there's actually been a false objectivity that has been pushed by the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, they paid for their own experts to push their own misinformation, and that was really sold to the media and then to the public as being, well, we have to have a balanced point of view. And that persists to this day, and it's been so harmful, you know, when there's an overwhelming scientific consensus on climate change, the fact that this, you know, until very recently, and I remember, you know, going back into the 90s and in the 2000s, the idea that there was a debate when there really was not um, is very, very uh damaging today. So thinking about it for me, and this is my personal choice, you know, I, I worked for NPR for eight years and I had a mandate to be completely objective and detached, you know, during the Trump years, during Black Lives Matter, all of these different issues that were coming into consciousness. And I had to be completely detached and not really give an opinion. Um, even though as journalists, obviously we, we exert our pr a perspective through the stories that we choose to tell and the people we choose to listen to and platform. For me, when it comes to climate change and especially the emotional dimensions of climate change, I felt like I needed to break out of that mold and be able to speak directly from the heart and talk to people about, you know, how we're getting through this and, and what is really happening, um, as well as being able to be uncompromising about the fact that you know, there are villains in this story. There is a fossil fuel industry. There is a, a large number of corporations that get rich and they're doing everything they can to prevent the clean energy future. And they need to be named. Our guest is Anya Kamenich. She is a writer. She's the author of The Golden Hour, which is a, a weekly newsletter on, on how children uh, view crises, especially climate change. Uh, Anya, I want to steal a, a, a quote from your newsletter about because I want to keep focusing on how we engage with crises like climate change that seems so uh, so impossible. And you write, or or someone else writes, and I can't remember. We engage with challenges like climate change, even though it's painful, because the alternative is living in denial, distraction, and or making the problem worse. Our reward for facing the pain is more authentic, committed, purposeful life with a wider emotional range, both sorrow and joy, and living in accordance with our values is its own reward. Can you take? A, can you uh, talk about that paragraph a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that it's very similar to what many wisdom traditions teach us about death. Right. So our lives are finite. And that's something that we live 
sometimes in denial of and sometimes we're able to face it. And and generally it's thought that if you face it, you're going to have a more meaningful approach to your life. You're going to make better decisions if you realize that, you know, you're taking that long-term view. Climate change is similar in that it's a reality of the world that we're in today. There's no world in 2024 that doesn't have climate change as a fact. Um, and And I feel very strongly that Denial is acting against us. It's stopping us from acting collectively as effectively as we could. And so the more that we kind of name that and point to it and the more that we cultivate and and help people, I think, see the benefit of of overcoming denial, because I think for a lot of people, you know, it's very natural to want to avoid pain. And thinking about what the world might look like in 2050 can be painful, Um, but we have to cultivate that courage, I think, and the ability to join together with others um, in making a future that's better. And I I do want to also emphasize that there's been an enormous amount of progress just in the last few years. And that progress has come from people who are willing to stare what's going on in the face. Um, We're going to take a call. Uh, Catherine is on the line. And Catherine, you're on the line with Anya Kamenetz and me. Welcome. Thank you. Um, what about Rachel Carson? Was she, isn't she the one that was trying to awaken us to what was going on? Or is that just dealing with pesticides? All right. That's it from here. Catherine, thank you for the call. Well, the, the, the great first environmental pioneer, uh, Rachel Carson. Anya, you must have read her stuff. Oh, we maybe we lost Anya Kamenetz. I don't know. No, I'm if, back if here. Did. I'm here now. Oh, uh, uh, Rachel, yeah. the uh, I'm sorry. We, we got a call from Catherine who talked about Rachel Carson, and I wonder if you might uh, tell us where Rachel Carson fits into all this. Oh, my gosh. I mean, of course, she's hugely inspiring to everybody, and especially women, I think, who write about this topic and the idea that journalism but also um, advocacy, you know, can come together and help raise awareness and create victories for for people and for endangered species, for example. So I think that everybody who writes about the environment is inspired by that work. Um, Tell us, if you would, Anya, about your child's bar mitzvah. Oh, (laughs) Um, so my uh, my child, um, their name is Lou. Um, They had a B-mitzvah. Um, and, uh, it was not my doing, I have to say, but, um, their, their portion. So everybody who has, this is a, you know, a Jewish ritual, rite of passage, and you read from the Torah for the first time and you read a certain selection and the story that was given that fell on that date, um, was really famous where, um, God appears in the burning bush to Moses and God calls out and, and asks Moses to go and liberate the people. Um, from Pharaoh. And Moses doesn't say yes right away. Moses hesitates and says, maybe, you know, who am I? Literally, who am I that should, that I should be called on to do this? And so my, um, my child, Lou, took this and looked at the hero's journey. So Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which is um, the stages of that journey are the call to action and the refusal of the call the call to adventure and the, and the refusal of the call, which is something that happens in a lot of hero stories. And Lou turned it on the, the congregation and said, you know, we all see that the bush is burning very literally when it comes to climate change. We can see it around us. 
what is that that is making us hesitate? What is that that's stopping us? What's stopping you? What's stopping me? And the, the, the exhortation then at the end was to say, you know what, it's actually not that important. You can think, you know, rise above your own you know, inadequacy and your own fear because there is an emergency and the only qualification that you need is to notice it. You know, I, I wonder if you could also talk about something that we all experience, which is isolation. Um, you know, we all have our lives. We all have our email inbox. We all have to get our kids to activities and live life. And we can't spend our entire day focused on climate change and what to do about it. Or, But sometimes, especially in given your experience with the pandemic, you know, we, we get isolated in our lives, in our little bubble. Um, and that can be really depressing. And I, I think we've lost some some of our skills in terms of being part of a community and going going to events and actually being social with people. Have you experienced that in, in New York in your own personal life? I mean, first of all, I have to commend you because I think that community um, radio shows like this one are one of the ways that people can start to feel connected and, and feel like they're part of a place. I do feel very lucky to have stayed in my pretty dense, walkable neighborhood during the pandemic. And so even in the most isolating moments, um, I would have to walk the streets a little bit and, and I would see people even if we were far away. So I felt insulated from that isolation, but I certainly saw it in many, many people, including people that, you know, chose to go and be in the woods and be away because it felt safer and it's totally understandable. But how do we rebuild that muscle and how do we refine the connection that we need? Um, I think that there's a lot of inspiring opportunities to do that in this climate work. I do see people coming together around big and small environmental issues that um, we have a shared sense of purpose and a shared sense of identity. I also see that for parents. I mean, it's very hard as a parent to feel isolated and like you're not supported. And, um, you know, we can turn that around and we have opportunities. And I think that public schools and, and schools in general can be a wonderful place to come together with a sense of purpose with other parents. And if you're doing climate action, that's even better. Let's talk about our politics just quickly. Uh, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee uh, for the Republican Party. He's, uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if he's a denier of climate change, but uh, the Republicans certainly are not making it a priority. Uh, how do you see our tribal politics going forward here, the presidential election coming up? How do you approach it as a writer and a journalist? Oh, I mean, you talk about isolation. The Republican Party is pretty much the only mainstream political party in the world that has such a dismissive and at times fully denialist attitude towards climate change. And it really makes us so isolated. Um, and, you know, actions like Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord um, are really dangerous. I think that um, I, I hope and I believe that a robust conversation about the achievements that Biden has made through, through the Inflation Reduction Act, some of the biggest investments in clean energy in our history. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a Biden cheerleader or a Democratic Party cheerleader, but facts are facts. And the amount of transformation that's going happening right now, I read yesterday that 185 electric car charging stations are going into the ground every single day in America. 
and those are jobs, you know, and it's transformative for people. And so I, I think and I hope that there's a very strong message to be made that is fully about economics and jobs and the betterment of our communities, as well as it is about clean air and safe water and uh, places for people to live and a future for the kids. And lastly, Anya, what's, what is the most positive thing you can leave us with? I'm asking this question of all our guests today. Give, leave us on a high note. What can we do? What's positive? Um, the amount of projected warming was cut in half between approximately 2017 and 2022, entirely through the actions of citizens and entrepreneurs. And if we did that once, we can do it again. The solar panels are are taking off at an unprecedented speed. Um, the cost of clean energy has never been lower. It's never been easier to make that conversion. And I think that we, you know, we can and we must and we have to keep our eye on what is still possible. Every degree of warming matters. And I think we can improve the outlook for our kids. It's already happened in the time I've been paying attention to this issue. Anya Kamenetz, uh, writer, speaker, journalist on climate change, an, an expert on how our kids are seeing it. Uh, thank you, Anya, for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And we will see you and hear from you soon. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great talking with you. Okay. Anya Kamenetz, uh, climate change through the eyes of kids and how they deal with what she calls the poly crisis out there. Uh, next up, Johanna Miller, the director of the Energy and Climate Program at the Vermont Natural Resources Council. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are devoting the entire show today to climate change, and we're going to come to back to Vermont and focus on what are Governor Phil Scott and the Vermont General Assembly doing about climate change? What's the debate? What's the discussion? And uh, we'll get to that with Joey Miller right after this. Uh, reminder also, uh, I'm back with my blog, and you can see that at kevinkellis.com. It's called Conflict of Interest, and I wrote about driving across the country uh, this this uh, this past few months. It's uh, Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to WDEV. We are back. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and we are devoting the entire show, uh, this two hours this morning, to climate change. We started with Rafe Pomerantz, who was one of the original activists around this issue way back in the 70s. Uh, there in the Carter administration, the Clinton administration, and still at it today. Then we went to uh, writer and journalist Anya Kamenetz to talk about climate change through the eyes of children and what it's like to be a parent uh, of young children who are facing what we are facing. Now we're going to switch gears and come to Montpelier and find out what, are, what is the governor, uh, what is Governor Phil Scott and the General Assembly in Montpelier doing about this? We're going to talk about that landscape right now. Our guest is Johanna Miller. She's the Energy and Climate Program Director for the Vermont Natural Resources Council, one of the oldest environmental groups, if not the oldest in Vermont. Um, her resume is too long to recite, so we're just going to get right into it with uh, Joey Miller. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Kevin. I'm great. Good to be here. So I wonder, can you take us back because 
to the beginning of Vermont's approach here in your career? Because even a guy like me, a political junkie who reads everything, there's a climate council, there was a commission, there's a climate action network, there's a law that has requirements in it. Take us back to when you first started working on this and, and where it all began in Montpelier. Oh, gosh. When I first started working on this, it would be too long, but I would, <clears throat> for your listeners, just sort of contextualize that, you know, Vermonters have been concerned about climate change for a long time. In 2005, the legislature established greenhouse gas reduction goals in statute. That was almost 20 years ago. In 2020, um, the legislature codified those goals as requirements in the Global Warming Solutions Act. And then through the Global Warming Solutions Act, embedded um, a framework in state government through the Vermont Climate Council, and then later a new uh, climate action office in the Agency of Natural Resources to really fully and finally focus on climate action with the sort of level of intention, consideration, and strategic planning that it deserves because of the challenge that it poses to Vermont and the world and our obligation to do our part, but also the opportunity of doing our part on climate in a state that imports, you know, all of the fossil fuels that we use and fossil fuels being the number one contributor to our warming world. So Vermont's been at this for 20 years. Um, we have three climate action plans. The first statutorily required climate action plan coming out of the Global Warming Solutions Act that was adopted in December of 2021. So we have a tremendous amount of, you know, sort of planning efforts and analyses that have been underway for two decades now and, and beyond. But really, um, you know, our focus, is, our focus has really deepened in the last several years, which is exciting and important because I think people are very well aware on the heels of the devastating flooding this past summer that climate change is happening. It's costly, it's consequential, and we have to do our part to adapt and become more resilient in a warming world while we also continue to plug the hole in the boat. As I say to you know my 12-year-old kiddo, we have to reduce emissions. Otherwise, it's going to get worse. So we have to do a lot of things and we have to do it in an equitable and just way. So there's a lot of work underway. It's exciting. It's important. And we've made progress and we still have a huge amount of work to do. Thank you. That's a great overview. So now take us, if you would, to the Vermont legislature and Governor Scott's budget address. Um, what what did you take from his address? I'm looking at a paragraph uh, where he talks about uh, long-term resiliency, that we've got to get it right. Uh, they're partnering. He says he's partnering with uh, State Treasurer Mike Pichak to look at other that that, that to build a truly comprehensive strategy around climate action. There weren't many details around that. What did you take away from the governor's budget address? I mean, I think you noted that the governor was sort of light on detail in the budget address, but he did acknowledge that we have a state adopted climate action plan and we need to move 
that work forward. So that's really important. I think, you know, the governor has a, a leadership role in tackling this challenge and opportunity. The legislature um, has really taken a significant leadership role and rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work to problem solve and make sure that Vermonters can participate in and benefit from cleaner, more cost-effective um, energy technologies. Um, you know, there's a huge focus this legislative session on resilience and adaptation, again, coming on the heels of the $1 billion price tag of the devastating flooding from last summer. Um, so there's a huge amount of focus this session and some big bills and conversations um, happening at this moment. And it's my hope that, you know, the legislature and the governor will be able to collaborate in a way that serves Vermonters well, meets this moment, and also, as your previous guest was just speaking, also recognizes that, you know, what we do today or what we don't do today um, will really have tremendous impacts, including economic and quality of life impacts for young people and future generations. So we have to do the hard work. We have to get it right. I don't know if there's, you know, like consensus around what quote unquote getting it right is between the governor and the legislature, but those conversations are happening on some very big, important bills that I hope um, and we will be working to help advance this session. So it's great, it's important, and we're going to need everyone to help participate to make sure that that progress is made and that we bring Vermonters along in this transition. We are going to take a phone call. Uh, we have Stuart on the line. Stuart, you are on the line with uh, Johanna Miller from VNRC. Thank you. Uh, we've heard a lot about uh, carbon uh, reduction in the atmosphere by reducing emissions. There's another whole concept that has not been addressed, and that is drawdown. Actions that can be taken to remove carbon, not focusing on eliminating carbon by not adding it, but drawdown. I recommend the book titled Drawdown by Paul Hawken, uh, published in 2017, that includes detailed uh, measurements, numbers, and predictions about the results of every action you can take. And right now, the state of Vermont is po poised to do an anti-drawdown action. The Worcester Range Management Plan addresses 18,000 acres just north of Montpelier. The uh, Forest and Parks is recommending logging 9,000 of those 18,000 acres over the next 20 to 40 years. Trees. Nearly mature forests are the best, one of the best ways to eliminate carbon. Right now, there's that draft management plan that people can comment on that is saying, let's develop the Worcester Range, let's log it. It's time for people to think of the concept of drawdown and to change that. Worcester Range plan. 
I'd like to hear Stuart, th- uh, Johanna's Stuart. thoughts on this. Stuart, thank you for your call. Joey, I suspect that's part of the uh, forest program at VNRC, but maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, it is. My colleague, Jamie Fidel, is our forest program director, and he is following this important um, you know, conversation and uh, effort that your guest, Stuart, just mentioned. I, I agree. Well, let me just start first with saying that Drawdown, the book that Stuart just referenced, is is powerful. It outlines a variety of different strategies that we as individuals and as a collective in you know, a sort of communities and uh, society can undertake. I would acknowledge the important role that our, our forests have in, for a variety of reasons, um, including as carbon sinks. At the same time, I, you know, we also do need to reduce pollution. I mean, we, we rely heavily on fossil fuels. We import all of those fossil fuels. That means it's a massive drain on our economy. But the combustion of the fossil fuels that we collectively utilize are accelerating the climate crisis. We have tools and technologies at our fingertips that will help people stay warmer, get where they need to go, um, and power their lives with cleaner technologies, whether that's through electric vehicles um, as a transportation method, you know, hybrid vehicles transit, microtransit, even walking where you need to go. I was hearing your guest earlier. I live in downtown Montpelier, and I walk a lot to where I need to go. I mean, I think we, we have to do all the things, and it's not whether or not we simply, you know, draw down and rely on carbon sinks. We, we have to limit our combustion and switch to more cleaner, cost-effective, efficient technologies. Beneficial electric electrification um, electric vehicles, coal climate heat pumps, heat pump out water heaters, because they don't combust, are much, much more efficient than combustibles like <clears throat> fossil fuels. That's a massive economic benefit. It's a great climate benefit. We have to do all of the things. It is not either or. And that's why I'm really optimistic about some of the big conversations that are happening this session related to a suite of strategies that recognize the need to adapt and become more resilient, and that includes a role for our forests. Um, and then also, you know, clean up our electric grids as we lean more heavily into beneficial electrification and sort of raise the revenues over time to help Vermonters pay for the impending and high, highly costly and consequential, you know, fossil fuel disasters that are going to come. So we've got lots of opportunity and tremendous needs, and we have to do a lot of different things. And I'm excited about the recognition of that in the legislature, and I'm hopeful for the progress that we can make this session to advance a variety of different strategies and then support Vermonters as we look to do more. Joey, i got to ask you about the Winooski River. We were all either standing in our basements or standing in our neighbors' basements or and watching this thing happen in July. What what's the status of the discussion around management of the Winooski for the next time? I you must be heavily involved in that. Well I don't know about the Winooski in particular, but I, there is a very elevated conversation about sort of the management and care of our rivers and our streams yep. and our water resources as, you know, sort of accelerated and intensified um, natural 
um, disasters are happening. So there's there's a lot of conversation, several bills introduced um, that are focused on better protecting river corridors by sort of implementing sort of regulations to safeguard those river ecosystems, trying to keep future development out of harm's way, using sort of those the natural assets around our rivers um, to mitigate flood risks um, and to really sort of let our, our rivers flow in many places, including my lovely hometown of Montpelier, which got totally hammered this summer. We have boxed in our rivers and they don't have anywhere to go. So that water is coming up, as you just said, Kevin, into people's basements. Um, into the first floors of many of her Montpelier businesses this past summer who lost, you know, most, if not all, of their inventory. I mean, this is happening. It's intensifying. It's going to continue to happen. And how we care for our rivers um, is in a really important piece of that, as is, you know, there's an, a focus this <clears throat> upcoming session on sort of caring for, better protecting, um, and potentially expanding the numbers of wetlands in the, the state of Vermont as really another important natural asset to help us manage in increased water, more intense you know, microstorms, aggressive rainfall events. Um, that's another piece of the equation. There's also conversations, Kevin, about dam safety, um, strengthening maintenance and requirements for dam owners and, and investing in strategic removal of some dams while making sure that flood, you know, some dams that are critically important to sort of flood management and water retention are safe and that we're investing in those dams to make sure that they hold water back um, at key events like they did, you know, this summer in Montpelier. If the Wrightsville Reservoir Dam would have broken, um, it would have just intensified by magnitudes the impact to Vermont businesses and um, homes in the community of Montpelier. So there's a very vigorous conversation about a suite of resilient strategies and river management and caring for and letting, protecting riparian areas around rivers and letting rivers flow more freely to do what they need to do to help us protect our communities is very high on the radar and it's exciting and important work. Uh Joy, I wonder if for listeners who want to get involved, I know there you're very involved in uh, 120 plus town energy committees. Um, there's action in the legislature. People can walk into the legislature and walk into the Senate and uh, House energy committees. Talk about where the action is, both locally and in Montpelier, if if a listener wants to get involved. Well, there's many ways, and I would just encourage your listeners, yes, to follow to the degree that they are able. All committee hearings are now recorded. You can watch them via Zoom real-time, or you can go back and watch um, sort of the save recordings of those streams. You know, my organization, you know, several organizations are following the work in the legislature closely. We do a weekly climate dispatch um, that's a very brief overview of what's happening on clean energy and climate-related issues. Um, every week during the legislative session. And um, my colleague, Justin Marsh, for the Vermont Conservation Voters, did a deeper dive democracy dispatch, which also follows timely um, updates from the legislature. So those are very easy ways engaging at the local level through town energy committees or in partnership with their municipalities is also critically important because just 
side note, Kevin, I want to make sure that your listeners are aware of two really important and exciting bills that are advancing this session. And ideally, at some point, if you're interested, there could be a deeper dive on two of these bills, one effort underway in House Environment and Energy right now. As we speak, they're looking at modernizing the renewable energy standard, um, which is a very important um, sort of program that requires utilities to procure new renewables in their portfolios. Um, so we're, this effort is to sort of bring Vermont's current renewable energy standard um, you know, further along to deploy more in-state and in-region new renewable generation to really green our grid as we lean into beneficial electrification for heating, power, transportation, et cetera. So that bill is really important. It outlines a sort of a different approach for different utilities in the state of Vermont because Green Mountain Power, which covers about 70% of the state of Vermont, is a different partner than, you know, some of our smaller municipal utilities. So it's a really um, good bill, important conversation. I hope your listeners will stay tuned to that, as well as one other very important bill that I'm excited about, which is an effort to establish a climate super fund, um, which is really, <clears throat> it's, it's intended to ensure that big oil companies um, that knew for decades that their products would disrupt the climate help to pay the costs of the, you know, the cleanup costs from the damage that those products have caused over time. There, there's a bill in both the House and the Senate that is focused on establishing a climate super fund um, to help ensure that Vermonters, you know, again, $1 billion is the estimate for last year's devastating flooding. That cannot that cost cannot fall solely on the backs of Vermont communities and taxpayers. Big oil has an obligation to help pay their fair share of those costs. So they're, this bill is likely to start in the Senate Judiciary Committee. There are 20 of 30 senators have sponsored the bill. Um, so they're going to, that bill and that approach is going to get an airing um, starting in Senate Judiciary in the next couple of weeks, which is really okay. exciting. Thank you. Okay. We have to leave it there. Johanna Miller, thank you very much from VNRC. Thank you so, so much for much. joining us. We really appreciate it. That is our show for today. we got to go. Thanks to our guests. Uh, hit me up on Twitter if you have suggestions for subjects or, uh, or guests. Uh, our show is produced and engineered by the folks at WDEV, Brent Curtis, Danny McGivigan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and all the folks at WDEV. My thanks also to the team at KWMR Community Radio in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks so much for joining us. I'll be back Friday with a whole new subject and a whole new round of guests. We'll see you right back here then for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Join us right here on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV. Thank you.